So the same thing was true here. Going into this year, people are saying, well, what could cause a pullback? Everything seems strong. So to me, when I look at whether or not the coronavirus could be a tipping point, it has the makings of a tipping point because it has the potential to be a pandemic. Uh, it has the potential and is already affecting our economies worldwide significantly just by having some shutdown in various places when it comes to factories and, and other things that it, it can certainly shave at least a point off the GDP, a GDP that really can't afford to lose a point in, so it can do that. And last but not least, to really be a possible tipping point, uh, it has to be very newsworthy. And obviously there's been no more newsworthy topic uh, over the last several weeks. In fact, even uh, the Democratic Convention, all the stuff that's going on, even that hasn't proven to be as newsworthy. Right. So, you know, we'll just have to hold on and see, but I think investors need to be careful. It's important now to have one finger on the trigger just in case, because this could be that tipping point. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at sdbullion.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to this RTD interview. Today I'm excited to have first-time guest, Mr. David Scranton. He's a financial advisor, author, as well as a speaker. And today he's joining us to share his thoughts on the financial markets, the global economy, and a variety of other subject matter. So David Scranton, welcome to RTD Interviews. Well, Mike, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you taking time to join us here on RTD. Looking forward to getting your thoughts uh, on where we're currently at, where we're heading, and things of that nature. But before we dive any further, for those that may not know David Scranton, can you give them a little bit of your background and how you've arrived at this point in your career? Sure. Uh, well, basically, it's simple. This is all I've ever done uh, my entire life, right out of college. In fact, my senior year in college started with an internship uh, as an apprentice financial advisor, and I kept at it. Uh, throughout 33 years now. It seems scary to say that, but yes, it's been 33 years. Uh, and, and interestingly, along the way, uh, because of a little bit of what we do is, is different from most financial advisors, we created a bit of a following. So we created a couple of organizations uh, where we help financial advisors around the country who are like-minded build their business. Um, and as a result, uh, we keep our eyes on, on a regular basis, really, on what's going on in the markets and the economy, because now it's not just about me and my clients. It's really about, uh, about the whole group that we have nationally. Um, and, and that's why we, when we have our weekly television show, uh, The Income Generation, we regularly uh, have guests come on. In fact, uh, in just a couple minutes, so I'm going to you know, interview Susie Ormond uh, for our next show, which will be kind of interesting. Oh, uh, so that's it for me. Uh, let's, let's, let's see what we can do to add some, add some value for your listeners. Well, I appreciate you for sharing that. And, uh, so the very first question I'm, I'm curious to find out. And so as of the last seven days in particular, a lot of, uh, uh, not so positive news in regards to the equities markets. And so I'm curious to find out, you know, you're in the financial realm, you know, what are some things that concerned you and what are you keeping an eye on and whatnot at this current point? Well, you're right. This whole coronavirus thing is, has changed. Uh, you know, we've been overdue for a bear market for a while now. I mean, we've had this bull market really since 2009. Uh, in fact, it's just about to go on 11 years. But most people thought that the market would stay pretty strong through most of 2020 because the president wants to get reelected. He's going to do whatever he can to keep the market strong. 
uh, and and um, and of course Jerome Powell, uh, the Fed chair, wants to keep us strong also. So until recently, we we're thinking 2021 is likely to be the bear market. Of course, now it's anyone's guess with this coronavirus, because not just is it a potential pandemic, which markets don't like. Uh, you know, Bill Gates uh, was quoted as talking about you know, there's, there could be a hundred year pandemic at some point. And now the question is, gosh, is this it, right? I mean, we know that SARS wasn't it. And a lot of the things we've seen over the last 20 years like this, but could this be it? And the reality is we don't know. Um, but Mike, what, what I do tell people though, is that it's interesting. Whenever we're overdue for a bear market. People have the tendency to say, well, what could the trigger be? What could turn around? The economy's doing okay. So what could be that one tipping point? And I always say it's foolhardy to try to guess what that one tipping point would be. For example, you know, we knew in the year 1999 that the tech stocks were, were, were overblown. Everything was too high, P ratios of 40, uh, P ratios of infinity with some of the tech stocks. So we knew that that had to break at some point. But that's not really what caused a 50% drop after the tech bubble burst. It really was Enron, it was WorldCom, it was 9-11, things that we really couldn't have seen coming. During the financial crisis, the same thing. We knew we had problems with the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, you know, the old liar loans, people saying, sure, I make $10 million a year, give me a big mortgage, and they get it, right? Well, but what we didn't see coming was the real cause of the financial crisis, was the credit default swaps, the fact that these financial institutions had irrevocably tied themselves together in such a way that when one fell, they all followed like a bunch of dominoes. So the same thing was true here. Going into this year, people are saying, well, what could cause a pullback? Everything seems strong. And, and you know, so, so to me, when I look at whether or not the coronavirus could be a tipping point, it has the makings of a tipping point because it has the potential to be a pandemic, uh, it has the potential and is already affecting our economies worldwide significantly just by having some shutdown in various places when it comes to factories and, and other things that it, it can certainly shave at least a point off the GDP, a GDP that really can't afford to lose a point in, so it can do that. And last but not least, to really be a possible tipping point, uh, it has to be very newsworthy. And obviously, there's been no more newsworthy topic uh, over the last several weeks. In fact, even uh, the Democratic Convention, all the stuff that's going on, even that hasn't proven to be as newsworthy. Right. So, you know, we'll just have to hold on and see, but I think investors need to be careful. It's important now to have one finger on the trigger just in case, because this could be that tipping point. Yeah, now you referred to a tipping point, and so based upon a lot of the prior uh, corrections that you gave us, 99, uh, 07, 08, 09 timeframe, all, all resulted in um, the transfer of, of capital from savers, investors, and whatnot. You mentioned having your hand on a trigger or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so this next tipping point, you know, do you see it possibly being a prolonged um, bear market or correction or whatever it might be known as as we look back in the history books, given the fact that for the last 10 years, Central banks around the world have done a good job of trying to make sure that we don't have a correction. They want to continue expansion as if that is supposed to be naturally occurring from this point on and never have a recession again, according to Jenny Yellen a couple of years ago. But what are your thoughts on this tipping point? Like how severe could it be if they allow it to take place? Well, first of all, um, 
I believe regardless, the tipping point will ultimately be about 50%. Heck, we've seen two 50% drops so far since the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. So wouldn't be a surprise to see that happen again. And frankly, when you look throughout the historical cycles over the stock market long term, we have a couple hundred years of history that says we probably need to have about a 50% pullback at some point. So this just means it could happen sooner rather than later. So it's, it's you know, what, what, what's going to happen here? Well, we don't know. You know, it always says the saying is that uh, it, it seems to, the market seems to take the elevator down and takes the, sta take the stairs back up again. So we can lose 50% in as little time as a year. The question then is how long does it take to consolidate and to rebuild? And historically, in the last two drops, uh, it's taking seven years from peak to peak during the tech bubble having burst, and then six years from peak to peak with the financial crisis. So I think investors have to realize it's possible that they could have six or seven years underwater. So that means that anyone who plans to spend some of their investment dollars in the next six to seven years really, really needs to be cautious. Interesting. Now, you know, as you mentioned, six or seven years is a time frame. You know, I tend to follow a lot uh, of the, the retirement issues and the pension issues we're having. And um, I, I think that a lot of people, you know, a lot of the baby boomers can't really afford six or seven mm -hmm. years of, of losses or the hopes of gaining back at this current point. Now, based upon all the things happening now, you know, you're in the financial realm, so you give advice and things of nature. You know, what's some of the what's some of the atmosphere and some of the mood of some of your clients perhaps that might be in retirement or heading to retirement and their concerns perhaps? Well, unfortunately, I wish people had more realistic concerns, but unfortunately, people have short-term memories. When you look at the rearview mirror in the stock market, it's not that big mirror that's on the side of our vehicles. It's that little convex mirror that's on top of it that comes with the disclaimer that objects might be closer than they appear. And that disclaimer exists on a large truck. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist on the stock market. So now the fact that we've had 11 years in recovery, people tend to be pretty complacent. They think everything's okay. My hope actually is that at least this coronavirus, whereas I hope it doesn't become a pandemic, and I hope that they find a cure pretty quickly or a vaccination, I hope that at least it, it scares people enough to get a sense of reality back, in, back into many of them. So they understand that, you know, this could happen at any time. They do need to be careful because at the end of the day, even though they may not be concerned about it now, because again, we've had over a decade of calm markets. The reality is that people's biggest fear is running out of money before they run out of life. Um, study and study have shown that they're literally more afraid. Big boomers are more afraid of financial death than they are of actual physical death. Interesting. Now, another thing that really concerns me is that as we're, we're anticipating some type of correction pretty soon, you're saying, you know, worst case scenario, 50 percent. And so the response uh, from the Federal Reserve has always been, you know, 500 basis points and then a little bit of stimulus here and there. Uh, nothing, nothing too much, but just enough to get the markets going again. But yet over the last 10 years, uh, I think they've been overly accommodative. Mm -hmm. And Jerome Powell has mentioned that the toolkit is still available, plus whatever else we haven't seen. Now, you know, are those some things that would lead you to want to adjust your strategies? Because if they're going to increase and to expand, um, you know, I can imagine being somewhat of a challenge for people to set aside certain amount of funds and expect it to, you know, behave normally. Right. So bottom line is this. The Federal Reserve 
can postpone, but they cannot prevent the next drop from happening. And that's what they've done so far is they basically postponed it. Um, but the Federal Reserve has less ammunition now. You know, the 10-year Treasury bond right now is down to almost 1%. So, yeah, they still got another 1.5% on Fed funds rates before we get into the negative territory. But even if they go with some more quantitative easing, try to drive down long-term rates. Long-term rates are already ridiculously low. Um, I actually wouldn't be surprised, although most economists I've interviewed have disagreed, I would, be, I would not be surprised if we saw negative interest rates here in the United States like we do in a lot of other countries across the globe. And so, so again, can, can the Federal Reserve getting involved, let's say, with this coronavirus fear, can they push it to 2021 or maybe even 2022? Absolutely. The, the next drop I'm referring to. But can they prevent it? No. Because, you know, you and I can get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee, okay? and we get that little caffeine buzz, and we're feeling good. But then around 1, 2 o'clock, you start to crash. So now maybe the second time, you need two cups of coffee to get that same caffeine buzz, and still it's not quite the same. Well, now, if you're, if you're trying to pull an all-nighter and it's 11 o'clock at night, now you might be able to have three, four cups of coffee, and you're really not going to get anywhere near the caffeine buzz that you did on attempt number one and attempt number two. Eventually, every drug uh, causes the patient to become immune, and eventually we'll hit that also here in our country. And unfortunately, the more the Fed gets involved like this to try to micromanage things, the more they kick the can down the road, and the worse the potential effects could be long term when things finally do come to roost. Thanks for watching this interview. If you're enjoying content like this, feel free to become a part of the RTD community by becoming a member via Patreon. All it takes is a monthly contribution of about $5 a month for more great content such as this. Just scroll down beneath this video here and click the Patreon link and then hit this tab right here to become a member of the team. Looking forward to bringing you more great content. Now, let's get back to this interview. Thanks. Yeah, and as you're giving an analogy of, of, a, of a caffeine drinker or a coffee drinker, I'm thinking like, you know, you get your first shot, second shot, third shot. I mean, the, the crash is going to be that much worse and that much harder to where you may not recover the next day the way you would like to normally. And yeah. so, you know, looking ahead at just all the situations we're facing now, uh, and then you mentioned uh, debt. And so debt, it's one of the things that really concerns me as well because, you know, our government from a fiscal standpoint, um, they're going to also try to combat this current situation. Therefore, tax cuts, tax increases, whatever the typical responses will be. But then we have corporate debt. We have, you know, negative yielding debt in Europe. And then you said negative rates. And mm -hmm. so, like, those are, not normal con those are not normal environments for investing, in, in, right. my, in my sense. So, do, right. do you, based upon the current responses that might be coming, do you consider the current model of investing to be safe and normal? <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what normal is these days. But, uh, you know, the model of investing we've seen is more and more in stocks, more and more in the stock market. Um, and part of the whole purpose of quantitative easing, even though the Federal Reserve may not say it or admit to it, is it pushes people up the risk curve. If they make bonds and other debt instruments look less attractive, bank CDs, et cetera, then people would just throw up their hands and say, well, I might as well just go in the stock market because you know, there's, 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 nothing, there's nothing else out there. And whereas that's not true, that's the perception that's been created over the last decade. Um, and frankly, that creates even more risk when things eventually do turn around and when things eventually do drop. So that's my biggest concern. And if you think about it, 
part of the reason that we've been trying to, to create inflation, the Fed's trying to create inflation and really can't create inflation of any, of any significance. They try to you know, kick, kickstart the GDP into growth. And we've still been somewhere in the twos in terms of GDP growth. And the reason is because uh, Madison Avenue uh, in some ways is more powerful than Wall Street. And Madison Avenue has been on a kick now and they've been teamed up with Wall Street really for a very long time. When I say a long time, I mean probably since the early 1980s. Uh, I had one of the first liar loans when I bought a condominium in 1987. I graduated college and I didn't have the earnings track record, but if I could put down enough money, and back then I think it was 25%, I can literally just say this is what I made, they wouldn't check it, and they, they, they let me, they give me a mortgage for the condominium. So that's going back more than 30 years, and everybody thought, gosh, this is what brought down and created the, the subprime mortgage crisis and created the financial crisis in itself. But the reality is we had this years and years before. Um, car leases. Uh, car leases became popular in the 80s and going into the 90s. Before that, people would have a car loan. They'd pay off the car. They'd keep it for a while, save up for the next car, and buy another one. Now we've got this mentality, heck, we're going to have a car lease you know, forever. We're going to have a payment forever. Why not just lease and have a brand new car? So again, it's all this cheap money that Wall Street has really helped, uh, if you will, through, through how they finance these things. It's helped Madison Avenue in their marketing, even to a point where you buy a boat on television. And you know that boat isn't uh, $69,000. It's $522 a month. And that really started in the last 40 years. So for 40 years, we've been artificially creating this bubble, this debt bubble. And at some point, it has to come to roost. I don't know when, but at some point it does. And, you know, I, I don't know. My generation, will we see it? I'm not sure. Uh, your generation and some of the people that follow you, absolutely. It's, it's something to, to pay attention to and to be concerned about. Yeah, now I'm curious now. So, you know, the problems have been laid out, you know, there are things you can't hide anymore. And so in the financial world, uh, some strategies, some solutions. And so we can talk about all the things happening around us, but yet you mentioned earlier about pull the trigger. And so what do you mean by pull the trigger as far as, you know, taking some out of the game or diversifying? Or what would some strategies be just some examples of what you tell probably some of your clients? Somebody getting uh, into the stock market right now with a lump sum of money uh, really concerns me if it's a buy and hold strategy. And, and understand, most people shouldn't be timing the market. But if you're going to get in today with a lump sum, now I'm not talking about somebody in their 20s who's dollar cost averaging into a 401k. That's a little different. If we have six or seven years underwater, that person is, is grateful for it because now they're buying twice as many shares while it's underwater. But for the person who's thinking about putting a lump sum in, maybe they got an inheritance or maybe they just uh, sold a piece of property or maybe they've been sitting on the sidelines since the financial crisis and now they just can't take it anymore with the stock market having done well and they want to jump in now. That person has to be really, really cautious and whether they're trading stop losses so that uh, their account can automatically sell, uh, liquidate when the market drops or whether they're using uh, put options on the S&P 500 to protect their downside, uh, or just having somebody really watch that market closely. I think that's important because I don't care if you're 25 years old and you just got a huge inheritance. Even a 25-year-old doesn't want to have six or seven years where they're underwater getting zero growth because they could have done something else and gotten more than zero. 
Now, for your person that might be looking to retire or currently retired now, what would be some strategies for that person that might be a little concerned about outliving their current funds? Mm -hmm. Anyone who is retired or within 10 years of retirement should have certainly less than half their money in the stock market. Um, they need to have a decent amount of money in fixed income, which is I call the universe of bonds and bond-like instruments. You know, people don't realize it that if you know what you're doing, and, and I always say don't, you know, sometimes don't try this at home. Um, this happens to be our niche, but our clients are often surprised when they see us constantly getting them a getting them four to five percent net of fees and interest and dividends because their brokers are saying well the best you could do is two two and a half maybe three and they're looking at us saying how are you getting how are you able to get four or five net of fees well if you know what you're doing and you're really careful you can do it and that should be certainly more than half of somebody's money if they're retired or within 10 years of retirement as a general rule now what are your thoughts on um diversifying outside of the, the conventional financial uh, tools and products offered uh, to, with precious metals and, you know, land and they art and things of that nature that people tend to run to as the markets reflect negative signs. Well, if, if you've got your retirement income fixed, if you have enough in fixed income or even dividend paying common stocks to satisfy your minimum income needs, in retirement. Then if you want to do some stuff on the side with maybe 10% of your investments, that's fine. Um, some people will buy uh, collectibles, whether it's art, whether it's automobiles, because they say, well, with everything being so questionable right now, at least if I buy a collectible, I may or may not make money. At least I'll get personal enjoyment from it, driving that uh, 1967 Corvette around on a sunny day, or maybe just you know, walking by that piece of art that's in my house on a regular basis. So, so that's one thing. When you start talking about precious metals, it's, uh, it's speculation. You know, I, love, I love the gold bugs. They always make me laugh because, you know, to me, it's one of the biggest misnomers because gold was always the great inflation hedge and it was really the great safe haven back when the dollar was pegged to gold. The dollar hasn't been pegged to gold now for over 45 years. So you have to say, if we really had a financial crisis, we had a real crisis, then who's going to buy gold, right? What people really need at that point is they need a roof over their head, i.e. shelter. They need food. So in a real time of crisis, I'd rather be selling real estate or having rental property that someone might need to live in, um, that I can get some cash flow for myself, or I'd rather go out and own a farm. And that may sound kind of radical. But, you know, it's, things get really bad. I mean, who's going to buy gold? Uh, it, gold doesn't pay any income. It doesn't pay any dividends, any interest. So it's not really going to help somebody today. And that's why I say if for all these things, those alternatives, really limit yourself to 10% max. 10% max. Sounds good. Now, as we get draw towards the end of our conversation, you know, the name of the show is Rethinking the Dollar. And so, as I mentioned, you know, the, the show originated because of my younger years when I did some traveling. And this is the same information that we are talking about now, if applied to, say, Venezuela, Argentina, currencies that are not reserve currencies, the information I'm sure will be a lot different because their currencies are, you know, they're the primary reason they're having issues due to debt and things of that nature. And so, do you foresee a time? within this next 10, 20 years, as a result of all the things going on now with the Federal Reserve and our massive amount of debt that will not be repaid more than likely, 
there, there actually been a currency issue where we run into some, some, some problems with the current investment model of like in, fixed income and things of nature. You know, if the currency becomes a problem, there are some things that you think about perhaps long-term or short-term or what are your thoughts on that? Uh, if we lose our status really as the world reserve currency, as you said before, then that, that's really the biggest issue. But you have to say, who can really, who's going to replace us? Um, and I'm not a big Bitcoin believer per se, but in some ways, I'm a little less of a believer that China would replace us uh, as being the world reserve currency or even India for that matter. Uh, there's just other countries that that either they're in worse shape than us in terms of debt as most of the Western world, or you go to the Eastern world and, and, and they have other issues there. So ironically, it, you know, it could be something like a Bitcoin, even though I, I don't think it's going to be, that would have the greatest chance of coming in and, and making that, really creating that world reserve currency status. If that were to happen, then you know, all bets are off with everything I've told you so far in this interview. <laughs> Understandable, understandable. So, David Scranton, it's been great having you here on RTD. Uh, definitely enjoy your insights and thoughts as to what's going on, where we're at, and you know some possibilities of things that might come. And so, definitely, we are all aware of the fact that there is something that lies ahead in the form of correction. Now, it's just a matter of how severe, and then how are people able to recover and hopefully get back to some type of new norm in this uh, upside down monetary world, as I call it. Uh, can you direct people back to your uh, opportunities and, and some of your, perhaps some of your books and whatnot, and how, and how can people be a blessing to your work? Sure. Well, uh, our company website is soundincomestrategies.com. That's soundincomestrategies.com. And uh, we have our television show, which also has its website, The Income Generation, designed for those over 50 years old, primarily. Uh, and lastly, uh, my newest book, The Retirement Income story, which tells a lot about what we do for a business and, and our philosophies for those income generation members, those over the age of 50. Sounds good. Once again, David, David Scranton, it's been great having you here on RTD. Looking forward to continue to follow your work as well as to hopefully have you on down the line as things you know get better or worse and then get your thoughts and assessment there. And other than that, thanks again for joining us on RTD. You're very welcome. Good being here.